picture. Here's what you're going to do. Take your money, put it back in your wallet or your pocket, turn around and walk through both sets of doors. The second one sticks sometimes. Go out into the parking lot, get in your car, turn the key, and never, ever speak to me again as long as you live! Welcome to the Twin Peaks Rewatch podcast hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. On this episode, we are discussing the 12th uh, episode of Twin Peaks, Laura's Secret Diary. Yeah, this episode first aired October 20th of 1990. And right before we started recording, uh, I looked up the people who worked on this episode because it was a bunch of new names. It's directed by Todd Holland. Um <laughs> I just learned about him and forgot entirely. <laughs> oh, he um he's like just a long-standing TV director. He directed a bunch of stuff on the Larry Sanders show and Malcolm in the oh, Middle. Interesting. He also is the co-creator of the TV show Wonderfalls for people who I've never um, seen that. Okay. It it was it's it was he did that with Brian Fuller who also did I think Dead Like Me and Pushing Daisies <laughs> and was also okay. anyway, whatever. Um he also directed some stuff on 30 Rock, but he's just like a guy who's been doing a bunch yeah, of TV for stuff forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this episode has one, two, three, four, five writers credited. Wow. It's um, it's the first writer credited is Jerry Stahl um, and then Mark Frost, Harley Payton and Robert Engel. So it's like uh, just like, Cl- yeah, the, like the, 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 the classic <laughs> yeah. guys and then and then other guy. And then but uh, Jerry Stahl was a writer on like on 80s TV shows like Alf and Moonlighting. He, wow. Then he directed one Twin Peaks, one Northern Exposure, and wrote a book named Permanent Midnight that a movie was made out of starring Ben Stiller in... Like, huh. uh, but, like, it's... I wonder what was what went on with that. I don't know. Yeah, a million a million writers. But it was... Um, it was interesting to me to see that, I guess, when I was watching this episode, I actually really noticed that it felt like it was made by a confident directorial hand. I thought so, too. Because this episode... <sighs> like I'm a it's fr- it's funny I I actually deliberately didn't look up who directed this episode but I wouldn't have been surprised if you had told me this was a a Lynch episode. Really? Okay, I didn't think it was that far because I don't I don't think Lynch Okay, I'll I'll back up a, a tiny bit I guess. Mm-hmm. Um Step 1, I'm a sucker for any like dramatic events that take place during a brewing and breaking storm and this episode is entirely that so like yeah. I'm biased in favor of a bunch of just Sure. Aesthetic and tonal choices of this episode. But I thought whoever was directing this episode when I was watching it, it felt like it was just it was a person who knows how to make cinematic TV of like not like the stock style, but it felt like the way that this episode was put together felt like it could be a TV show that was on now, the way that it's the way that it's held together, where like scenes are always incredibly aware of where the next scene is going. And the cinematography is really good at sort of managing a sense of place and transitioning from thing to thing. Like the scene in the double R diner when, uh, Hank and Norma are prepping for the food critic, I think. And then the camera just kind of goes, meanwhile, Maddie and Don are having this side conversation. And then it it exits that shot and Hank steps right back into frame and we're brought back into that. Or like, um, when, Lucy and Andy, or no, Lucy and Dick have that, Dick Tremaine have the scene where he's going to pay for her abortion, and she 
yeah barrels into the right. break room crying and slams the door and then the, it just holds on that shot and andy walks into frame lead, leading leland palmer into his uh preliminary hearing with the judge mm-hmm. and it's just like that's true those those like just holding shots and ha- having the actual arcs of the story cross over each other literally in the same mm-hmm. frame is something mm-hmm. that directors don't usually do on this show they just say fuck it and just cut to a different scene whereas in this case right. it felt like but that's really common in a lot of television. Yeah, just not in Twin Peaks, but especially it, it, like honestly, sitcom kind of type television, which is right where someone is a conversation happens in like the, uh, a coffee shop or a nightclub or a club, and then someone comes bustling in with their own story thread in the background, right. and the camera tracks yeah. with them. But exactly, like, yeah, it it felt when you're talking about sitcoms like Alf and whatever. I mean, those are like some '80s ass sitcom right. sitcoms. It you was, know? yeah, that, that's. When I watched this episode, that was I didn't know who directed it until just now, but yeah. it was a thing that I was thinking about was just this episode feels like it's directed by someone who has not directed other episodes of Twin Peaks, but it feels like it's directed by someone who takes into consideration a lot of those things that one does when directing something really compact like a TV show of just yeah. like yeah. what is the most efficient and interesting way to make all of these things actually overlap in a way that feels like there's intent to it. But it didn't feel like David Lynch style to me personally <clears throat> that's fair i think I was, other than everyone had lightning on their face all the time yeah there was some extreme some really extreme cases of that uh i guess i the i guess to kick off the actual sort of specific discussion of the episode i guess i was probably um put in a sort of lynchian frame of mind by well you know what here let's let's quickly slam out the major oh, plot yeah. sorry i jumped way ahead no, 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 sorry no, that's fine so in this episode um, we meet Judge Sternwood, who comes to town as preparations begin for Leland Palmer and Leo Johnson's hearings. Uh, Donna gets a peek into Laura Palmer's secret diary. Josie Packard returns and brings the Mill storyline back with her. And uh, <laughs> Agent Cooper prepares to make an exchange with Audrey's kidnapper. Um, so anyway, the what thing I wanted to say is that as this episode opens, and maybe this was intentional, it is basically just the opening of Blue Velvet, right? I mean, it's this like... It's isn't it like doesn't I actually don't remember the opening of the opening shots of Blue Velvet. I just remember the guy the opening... with the hose on in the yard. Okay, maybe it's not the opening shot then. But really early in Blue Velvet, there is the shot that is so close up into the earth that it is basically abstract. Oh right, and it slowly pulls away, pulls away, and we see that it's like sort of fertile. I'm earth sure that I'm sure like that you're right. Ants and you know you know I I, I should have rewatched the opening to directly compare, but it's. Versus exactly. this little like microscopic camera pulling through a ceiling tile or through an acoustic tile on the wall. Exactly, yeah. right. And pull out, pull out. And you, it's totally abstract until you realize what is actually being depicted. Um, and it's doing it with this like heavy layer of kind of intrusive white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a very Lynch move. And maybe it was just a bit – maybe David Lynch suggested that moment or maybe the director or simply just, a- just said this is part of the vocabulary of this show. That was that was the feeling that I actually got yeah. from this was that it was an episode directed by an incredibly competent television director who just sat down and thought a lot about the episode that they got. And then yeah. like, – because it, it's never like as daring as a David Lynch episode would be and yeah, it's never as insane totally as like a pure Mark Frost episode right. would be. But at the same time, it's just like – what I was thinking about this whole episode was last episode felt very similar to this episode to me at sort of the content level. Like it felt like we're just going through the motions of laying a bunch of stuff out on the table for season two. But mm-hmm. I cared so much more in this episode for a lot of reasons. Yeah, like, sure. Even though the actual, I don't have a lot of individual scenes that stood out. It was just, it mm-hmm. was just a fun watch to me. Well, for me to go back to that original scene, something I really loved about, or not original, but the first scene, a thing I really loved about it was, setting the tone with this really intense, weird kind of impressionistic opening shot. 
And mm-hmm. then we cut to Leland Palmer's like it's a very intense, slow uh uh zoom out, I guess, what what track reverse tracking shot, I guess. I don't know yeah. what you call that when it's inside something that small. But uh um we then see the sort of human equivalent of that, which is just Leland Palmer's infinitely intense face with his completely white hair. And is that like grimace? He has the most incredible. Yep. He is never not. He is more amazing to look at than ever. I mean, the, I don't know how far. He also even just looks like it's probably the way he's lit, but he just looks like hollowed out in the yeah, sequence. Yeah, exactly. Part of yeah. it is how he's lit for sure, because you see the whole contour of his face in yeah. a really intense way. And I wonder how, how, how sort of prescient the casting of Ray Wise was because the way he looks after he goes through the hair transformation and he's just and is just constantly harrowed is amazing yeah that, the hair transformation plus now just i guess last ep- the last episode it ended with leland you're under arrest for the murder of jacques renault but yeah now it's just like we're in the most mega leland palmer that has ever existed in the show yeah but yep. yeah the the only other thing I have to say about this scene that I thought was totally um, worth a totally good character moment was how um, unsympathetic unsympathetic Cooper is at least on the surface to Leland committing murder, even though it is you know oh the, especially the, the beat at the very end with doc hayward was like i mean you can kind of where doc hayward's basically saying you can see where he's coming from his, right. he thought this guy killed his daughter then he's like do, do you prove of murder do you prove of murder yeah. no yeah, yeah. I, he's equally interested in pursuing justice on behalf of a complete slimeball criminal right as he is on behalf of a you know a, a, a murdered teenager yeah which i think it is a really good character moment yep. for him it's not that he's a callous person um it's that he has and they don't overplay it either. He's not like they don't linger on that. It's not no. A lot of shows I think would treat that as like he's an unimpeachable force of justice. Right. But it's just a little justice is blind. Right. Exactly. But it's not. It's just it's that's just how he reacts to these yep. things. He can't not react that way. And I, I like the little I like that little suggestion. I did also like that they had when I think it was Truman who asked when they're trying to interrogate Leland and figure out the method to to <clears throat> his actions were like. Why did you kill Jacques Renault? Then he was just like, well, you arrested him. Yeah, I, I know. Like, that was really, really good. Well, it's like, because you don't always arrest the right person, so it's totally exactly. not justification to do anything. But at the same time, it's like, uh, yeah, it's fair. We, they, we had, they had a huge oh, that, sting oh, operation. That wasn't how I interpret. I didn't oh. interpret it as them being like, that's fair. I interpreted that as being like. Oh, no, no. A, so, I, I mean, I don't think they interpreted it as being that's fair at all. I thought that they, they had very different thoughts about it than that. Yeah. But, like, you can his mental process is. Uh, entirely understandable. Well, I, I just thought it was a really good illustration of the difference between public perception of things and the realities of the justice system. Right, yeah. You well, know, it's like, like you, arrested you arrested the killer, guy, right? So, uh, uh, they're like, <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. 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 Um, Which is the sort of second step of that is in, in what Doc Hayward was saying to Cooper, where he's like, well, you can understand why he would do it. And Cooper's like, no, I do not. Yes, exactly. Yes. Anyway. Um, I want to bring in quickly a later scene because there's this such a minor dumb scene Um, just related to um, Truman and Cooper and the whole justice process. There's a scene later where uh, Truman is giving Cooper all the names of the, uh, I guess, state um, 
officials involved in the impending proceedings. I can't the, oh, know, the judge and the DA and judge stuff. and DA and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. um, Cooper is like taking notes on a PDA or something. I Did don't know what he's that? doing. What was that? <laughs> Does he have he ever done that before? No, but it was. I noticed it only because it had bad it classic, like boop, yeah, boop, classic yeah. F- computer foley of the era where a computer's like, do, 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 yeah. whenever anyone types in a key. I thought that what he had was probably closer to like a pocket dictionary type thing that had notes in it, you know? Yeah, like I'm it, sure it does, but he's never, no, he, why we've, he seen him, we've seen him writing notes and we've seen him extensively dictating notes. I know. What is he typing? He's going, do, 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 do. I don't know. It's Cooper's that just was really fast. Season two. Cooper's got to have the latest gadgets. <laughs> yeah, Maybe that was a test program for like sharp or Casio or someone underwriting twin peaks. Yeah. They failed though. They didn't show the brand name. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, I'll just to quickly tag this on because it's another minor thing related to the investigation. Um, I think it's right after there, maybe not somewhere around there. Cooper um, is a Cooper or Truman notices Andy's boots. Uh, it's Cooper because Andy's reaching for his sperm sample under the oh, table, yeah. and Cooper is like, stay <laughs> oh, where, he's like, stay where you are. He's like, I need those. I need to see that. And, and, and he thinks right. that he's okay. Talking no, about no, his let's sample. come back to that because <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about that whole thread. Yeah. Okay. Later. That's a whole big thing. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so I don't know. We can go to the, uh, the great Northern. Um, there's like this little thing where an employee tells Ben Horn about this travel writer, MT Wentz. And I, I want to come back to that, but, um, but jumping to, to a different thing, let's just go through this, all of this Audrey stuff. Yeah. Is, that, is that okay? So, uh, Jean Renault shows Ben the blackmail tape. The thing that I, I like about this scene is this scene and the, like, and the the scenes dealing with Cooper and Ben Horn talking about Audrey is that through the entire thing, um, Ben Horn, even though there's clearly some degree of concern, it's not as though he isn't concerned for his daughter. I believe that he is, in fact, genuinely concerned. He also cannot ever shed the sort of canny businessman mode right. that he constantly exists in like when there's he's, always like a metaphorical or literal cigar in his mouth being chomped yes exactly when he's talking to to cooper there's the, the there's the chomping cigar he can't ever seem like he's not a bullshitter yeah he's always got that going on and then when he's talking to jean renault uh there's this there's this great line it's not a, a zinger or anything but renault is is um telling him about this whole deal and you know he's the he has this own he he wants compensation in the form of of Cooper, but before he describes what form the compensation is going to take, Horn replies to him, like, I shouldn't have to pay you. Like, they should bear the cost of their own middleman. Right. And, like, that just little aphorism. <laughs> right. Or, that like, he the just tosses daughter's being kidnapped <laughs> like, here. Uh, let me explain to you, Business 101. Like, yep. what? It's just, it's his, his just complete um, immersion in that world yep. and ability to constantly exist in it is, is I think, really well. Yeah. It's, it's, um, when you said that the thing that I thought about entirely was the uh, the wife's dad in Fargo, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's the Coen Brothers version of that character who just, like, gets utterly destroyed. But right. where it's just like, what are you doing? I don't yeah, know. No, that's a good, that's a good poll. Yeah. Um, all of the scenes where Audrey's video is being shown on the TV in Ben Horn's mm-hmm. place. Okay, so I don't – this is probably a – Uh, an overreach as far as intentionality is concerned, but (coughs) 
I can't not think about the video of Laura I know, on right? James's motorcycle in season one. Yeah. And then I wondered to myself, like, is it just because we're so far removed from Twin Peaks that the idea of seeing a distorted camcorder face of someone on a television? Oh, it's self. Like, like that's, that it's, now would be such a conscious aesthetic yes, choice. Right. And a through line where you're like, oh, it's the same style choice of a tiny TV with a, with a face on it. Like, it's that's an old what VCR. TVs were that's like what it would that. look like in Twin yeah. Peaks. But at the same time, like, the size that her face is in frame, the way it sort of comes in and out of the shot yeah. and looks at the camera, then looks it away at something else. Yeah. And the way that even just the camera framing it inside of the TV is presented, mm-hmm. it feels so evocative I, I think of it's that. Both. I think yeah. it's both. I think it's impossible for us to get away from the fact that that is just not what TV and not what filmed footage looks like now. But at the time, it simply was. Like, right, it's just a videotape. Everyone's TVs were smaller than they are now. Most yeah. normal people's you, TVs were smaller. They were all these a shitty camcorder and put it through a VCR, it looks like that. Yes. Exactly. But in terms of, you're right, the framing of those shots, they're way more close up than home videos typically would be. Yeah. And that's uh, in different for different reasons in each case, right? I mean, um, in one of them, it's to highlight the suffering of this person. In right. the other one, it's because it's a goofy friend goofing yeah. around with their friend james is just cheesily in yeah. love with his subject so like right. the camera's just right up in her face yeah. but like but that's but on the on the side of the creators of the show that's probably intentional yeah maybe i and it, who knows yeah it, it definitely it definitely i i had the same um yeah because it was especially the second of, time yeah. when when cooper was there looking at it <clears throat> right it reminded me so much of cooper looking at the home video yeah, of yeah, laura yeah. in the sheriff's department yeah it's true um do you have any anything else to say well so, no. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about the adverse stuff? No, we can move on. Uh, do I? I guess I don't. Because, I mean, well, oh, it... I mean, there's the thing about uh, Horn totally changing his tune with Cooper about their... About Cooper and Audrey's relationship where, you know... Well, now it's because he's like, oh, like, Cooper's the bait or the bargaining chip. Yeah, so exactly. Like, so now hey. it's like, oh, yeah, you got that special relationship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean... I don't know. It goes into that whole other thread with it's actually not. There's not very much more to talk about it, so we should probably just. Is there anything to wrap up with the rest of it? Because it ends with Cooper goes to Hank, or not to Hank, excuse me, to Sheriff Truman, and says, "I need a bookhouse boy." Mm-hmm. And they meet at the roadhouse at, towards the end of the episode, mm-hmm. and it turns out Truman has turns picked out himself. Truman and that's, like, I thought that was a really charming. Yeah, it was good. Oh man. Okay, I do have one thing to say about this arc, uh, about, about the, the ha- this half of of the Audrey kidnapping story, and it's just in the scene when Cooper was recruiting Truman. They are standing so awkwardly close together. And in the roadhouse? No, when Cooper's like, I'm going to need a book house. Oh. Well, I'm going to need one of your friends. It's it's um it's way earlier in the episode. Uh-huh. No, I know what you're talking about. I, um, and this was another thing where I'm like, okay, I know technologically that they are standing as close together as they are because <laughs> this is built to look good in a close-up shot on a 4x3 right. TV that has overscanning and all this other stuff. But the way the shot starts... Uh, the actor who plays Truman goes in, comes in and hits his mark, and it's just like their legs are almost touching at the knee, <laughs> and they're having this thing where Cooper's like, "I'm going to need one of your best for this," and then Cooper walks out of the shot, and Truman just looks at him, and it's like the most longing <laughs> look, where it's like he's just just a dreamboat. Like right. <laughs> it's bad, Truman. Well, Truman, it's Truman. It's so easy for his face to glide into that mode. I know because he always has this sort of like but when, starry. God, Cooper's just like. Uh, yeah, but in the context of Cooper <laughs> no, being totally. like, yeah, yeah, I need yeah. a special favor from you and your boys. It's just between <laughs> us. Trust you with this. Then he's like, oh, oh Cooper. Cooper. <laughs> but then, yeah, the last scene of those guys. 
he shows up, which is touching, and Cooper's making a weird arrangement of snacks, which is just well, a when, when Cooper, thing. when Cooper, yeah, I know that was a, that was a really good moment. Um, but when Cooper realizes what he means, he has this just like great little smile. Yeah, no, just, that's good. They're buddies. They they're, like each other. They're buddies. Their friendship is good. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, we can we can move on past that stuff. Yeah. Um So, uh, do you want to talk about this whole uh, M T Wentz thing? Yeah, I guess. Um. So, Man, okay. If you're gonna, the MT Wentz storyline is also the storyline when you bring in noted sitcom writers and directors. Apparently, yes, exactly. I was gonna, I was <laughs> because, definitely gonna talk about that. A famous because, critic, a famous entertainment like yeah. food and hotel critic coming to town. They're in a wacky, wacky disguise. Guy comes to town. It's like the, it's like the, um, what is it? The uh, Conrad types of stories, or who is it? I don't know. There's whatever that that media theory thing is about. The types, different types of stories, and one of them is a stranger comes to town. Yeah, the the, the definitely the TV sitcom version of that is a wacky guy comes to town. Yep, uh, and it's this where it's like everyone is scrambling over themselves to identify who it is, and they keep everyone keeps misidentifying right this person presumably. Um, well, because one person it was that it was the DA, wasn't it? Who Hank thinks it is. So it's, it's a law enforcement person who comes in right. to double up. Well, yeah. So what, about on that, do you think that Hank like? intuited that and was kind of just bullshitting how excited he was about the mt wentz thing because he he's like falling over himself to uh yeah i couldn't tell to impress if if hank was like yeah that was okay so i couldn't tell if hank was actually just like this is an opportunity to get back together with norma in a way that's right. good and, well, it and probably he, is he partly also that. very pointedly plants that line about like you still close with big ed right knowing full well that right like, but then he also apparently tells everyone all over town to tell any strangers right. to come to the double r yeah yeah yeah. because when that when like, tajamura checks in yeah yeah the the concierge or whatever is like you should go to the double yeah. r right uh, so yeah it seems like it seems like hank is just killing a lot of birds with as few stones as possible with this strategy but also yeah it was it was really it was both like happy and sad because of that. Like he was getting into it and I was like, Oh man, this is actually like probably exactly what Norma would hope that her life would be. Right. But at the same time, I'm just like, this is probably bullshit. This yeah, is probably well, all she's, terrible. Yeah, she's clearly like, um, charmed by it a little bit, but obviously we know her well enough to know that right. she's, but she's wary. I mean, she's, she's a canny she, person. Like it feels like she crossed over the line of accepting that this was legit yeah. by the end of it though, where right, like right. she doesn't care that Hank pulls a customer away and pushes him into the kitchen and like, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, it's probably going to end badly. I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't remember where this goes because it's a storyline about a restaurant and hotel critic. Yeah, it's so absurd. Um, one thing I do want to mention about uh, I'm sort of combining the Tajimura stuff and, and I guess into this because it's sure treated the same way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just another just like it's wacky thing. Weird, um, <laughs> weird, weird. Uh, yeah. When when Tajimura checks in, we have our latest uh, Great Northern. Like tableau, it is just the thing. Now it actually makes me sad that the that Great Northern, Great Northern yeah. establishing shots are just reduced to wacky costumes run by. Yeah, and this one's not even that outrageous. This one is the Lumber Queen semifinals with these. Just... The Tri County Lumber Queen semifinals. Oh, was it? Yeah, okay, please, I, I missed that. Um, yeah, just d- women in like bathing suits or whatever they're wearing, just like, all walking suits, and running by, yeah. Walking by. Yeah, and Ben Horn chomping a cigar near yep, them. Yep. Yeah. That you can't resist. Um, so uh, <clears throat> we get another. Do you want to talk about um, the whole Donna Harold, all that stuff? Oh yeah, I actually, 
I like that stuff a lot in this episode. Yeah, it's interesting. I did, I did too. I really so that oh, that stuff opens by the way with another stoplight shot going from yellow to red yes. before we moved to Harold's place. Which oh yeah yes that's how we're introduced. it's it's yeah. funny because I was I was actually this episode is the one that has me caring about all the things that I have absolutely not been caring about in season two and not at the same time it doesn't really advance much of the mystery stuff at all like no, it doesn't. I was actually really entertained by. Uh, Andy and Lucy's stuff in this episode. I want to get to that. And also yeah, yeah, yeah. the Donna, Maddie, James, mm-hmm. uh, Harold. Is that his name? Well, because it's Harold, yeah. Harold yeah. Smith. I think I think what you're getting at is that there's not a lot of sort of plot advancement in those two threads. But what does actually happen in those two threads is character development. Which, yeah. especially on the Andy and Lucy side, just nothing for yeah. like a season and a half. and and uh, Or I guess a season. Um, and then on the Harold and Donna side... We get this, I think, really – this started last episode for sure, but but definitely deepens here. This whole dynamic between Harold and Donna where Donna finds this guy really intriguing and kind of mysterious in a counterintuitive way because he's this weird recluse. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's this like bit of unease that is that is always layered over all of his scenes. Right. Because, because he is – this weird recluse and it's not really clear what his motives are. Um, but he's also seems to actually have cared about Laura a lot and has all of this, has access to information that no one else has, which is, um, you know, we, we need because we're still dealing with a mystery here. Uh, and that's intriguing to Donna as well. Uh, and I, I, I think the two, I think those two actors play that chemistry really well. Donna, Donna, um, her sort of face and reactions are, are good for it. So I feel like that stuff was wasted on James. Yeah, that's true. I guess it, uh, it helps that her only scenes were against him and against Maddie, which was a really good, they get that tiny little scene in the diner mm-hmm. where, yeah, where Maddie's like, just want to let you know, there's nothing between us and James. And then what if Donna's like, I didn't say we couldn't see other people. Right. Are, you, like, are you, are you seeing someone else? And she yeah. just goes, just right. like blows <laughs> cigarette smoke off into the diner. Yeah. And like, yeah, this episode, Oh, we also get even more. I mean, this is almost becoming a given at this point, but it's like yet another example of every single time we hear any sort of every time every time we get another a new primary source from Laura Palmer, you know, something in her own words, it's always even more just explicitly dark yep. than the last thing we heard in this case, which is about how like oh, she loves Donna so much, but if only Donna knew about all of these dreams she has, these like black dark dreams about big men taking her under their control. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, that's, I guess just the pattern that's been established. At this yeah. Point. But that doesn't make it not like unsettling or no, surprising sure. every time Espe- it shows up, especially because that's followed by Harold saying like people come and tell me their stories and I take their stories and place them in a larger context, a sort of living novel, friends and lovers, maybe someday you will too, which is like, set against the stuff we just heard from Laura. It's like, what are you doing with, like, what do you mean? Like, what are you doing with that information? <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently also nothing other than just sort of thinking well, about sure. it. sure, yeah. Because right. Donna was like, should we not, uh, what? He's like, and then he doesn't want to give any, that information is admittedly not, like, useful to an investigation, but at the same time, he's like, I don't know, I read it a million times, it doesn't seem important to me, and besides, right. Laura gave it to me. Yep. Like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yep. A sort of living novel inside his brain, I guess. Yeah. He just reads constantly to himself. <clears throat> constantly and forever. Yeah. But I feel like I just get the sense she is both sort of 
attracted and unsettled by all of this, which I, yeah, is how... But that you know, means she can't stay away from it, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, you want to talk about Andy and Lucy? Yeah, Andy and Lucy. So this this starts off... Andy, this, Lucy, and Dick Tremaine. And Dick Tremaine, that's true. This this kicks off with Andy talking to Doc Hayward about about his uh, like virility test, I guess, which he says, it's about my sperms test. You know, I flunked, which... <laughs> There's there's all the like whatever all of the actual sort of totally goofy turns of phrase that stick to characters are in these arcs in this episode. No, you're to totally me. you're totally right. And I also one of my one of my most one of the things on this show about which I'm most lukewarm came in came into use in in I think to excellent effect in this scene the the cheesy like jazz brush drum score right that the the. the, the, the yeah. thing that comes in is put to maybe its best use it felt as, it really starts, good. <laughs> as it starts for the express purpose of accompanying andy sneaking around to jizz in a cup like that's <laughs> so bad oh man that whole yeah him sneaking into the bathroom and then with run, flesh world yeah, and then sneaking into out Lucy, yeah yep. <laughs> so that that was all good um, oh man! So this episode has maybe some of the best and worst music used to jump around because that was a fantastic use of just an existing track. But man, the end when they're in the roadhouse and the Twin Peaks theme is playing when Cooper and Truman are hanging out. What a, what a disaster that. of a scoring choice! It's just Cooper with his drink and his like collection of snacks, and it's going boo doo, boo doo. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Anyway, oh, whatever. Yeah, it didn't even register in my brain. It oh was man, very yeah. unmemorable. Just the Twin Peaks theme played <laughs> yeah. over a whole scene. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, it's okay. Andy um, and Lucy is what Andy we're and talking Lucy, about yeah. today. So, um, we uh, we finally so you know we finally learn what the deal with with Dick Tremaine is, and it's basically what. It's what you'd think, right? What you'd think. Lucy, yeah. <laughs> although Lucy's reasons sound like she just read them out of a magazine, which it sounds like she kind of did. Her, compla- her complaints about Andy. Oh, oh, how he's, how he's like, lazy and slovenly, basically. He doesn't even own a sports coat. He doesn't right. clean his yeah, car. Yeah, whereas, yeah. ladies, if your man doesn't have a sports coat, ditch that loser. Whereas, like, you Dick know? keeps very good care of his car and has yeah. lots of coats. Right. But it turns out that in every other way, he sucks. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's a bunch of stuff. About- it was good to hear her just say it, though. It was good that all of that storyline just was expressed everywhere. No, it's true. And the uh <clears throat> it's it's nice to um it was nice to see Lucy basically just uh throw that guy's money back in his face. Yeah. It's I always like when Lucy just just decides to stop taking shit from people. Man, she did it in the <laughs> it's most It's always really good. She did it in the most Lucy way possible though. She was like God, what did she say? She told him to like exit through both doors and the second door sticks and then to like get to your car, <laughs> open the door, turn the key. Like right. it was just like yeah. in that in like the most mundane thing turning into the most detailed bureaucratic explanation of it, plus all the details that Lucy can possibly right. convey. Yeah. Um the other thing I want to say about this is not related to the the actual Oh, fiction. Take your money, okay. put it back in your wallet or your pocket, turn around, <laughs> walk through both sets of doors. The second one sticks sometimes. Go out to the parking lot, get in your car, turn the key, and never speak to me again as long as you live. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, put it back in your wallet or your or pocket. Your pocket yeah. You go through both doors, second one sticks. Like, yep. oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All the, all the little character moments in this episode are great. Yeah. Um, I Separately, this is not, again, relevant to the, the fiction itself, but I was, I've, I'm so baffled by the Dick Tremaine character. I think he's just one of the weakest character conceptions 
on the show. He just feels like a the laziest idea ever to me. Um, and uh, and I looked it up, and apparently the actor who plays him, his name is Ian Buchanan, and he's Scottish, which was fascinating to me because Dick Tremaine himself sounds like someone who's an American trying to affect a transatlantic kind of pseudo-American, pseudo-English right. accent. He's actually Scottish playing whatever, like apparently an Englishman is what Dick Tremaine is actually supposed to be, which is totally unbelievable to me, yep. given what he actually sounds like. Yeah, um, I'd always thought that it was a guy who's just affecting, right. like, affecting outdated class. Right, exactly. Huh. And also that actor was a, a like stage actor who ended up just being on American sitcoms for decades. So he was on like General Hospital and like all of these. He apparently like returned to General Hospital a couple years ago after like 20 years Whoa! away from it. But it's been on like all these other sitcoms as well. He's just been. Well, General Hospital, uh, sitcoms or soap operas? I'm sorry. Soap operas, soap operas, soap I was operas. Like, what? No, no, sorry. I'm sorry. He's been Classic a. Classic sitcom, yeah, General know, Hospital. Yeah, no, I don't know why I said that. He, he's been an American soap opera actor for, for decades. And so he. So they just were super excited to get that guy yeah, in their show, I, I guess. I guess. I, I, I don't – yeah. So – Weird. Yeah. Huh. It's, it was – it kind of made sense to me somehow. Um, and I wonder if he was hamming it up in that way for that reason because he intuited or this they told why, him. This is why I'm wanted is, here. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it seems like based on his history, he's also has a training as a serious actor. But right. he's obviously he's deliberately not bringing – that like gravitas to bear in this well, role. There's a, there's a self-awareness in sort of just his facial expressions and in his eyes that you don't get totally. from some characters in this show. No, absolutely. But it's a very hammy yes. thing, you know, very obviously knowingly. So yeah. Um, anyway, I just, I, I was really curious about that. So I looked it up and I, I was kind of, I was simultaneously surprised and not surprised by various parts of that biography. Um, so we have all this stuff with judge Sternwood. I don't know if I have much to say about that whole thread, it kind of just pops up. You get introduced to it and that's about it. He yeah. gives that nice little soliloquy about when these frail shadows we inhabit now have quit the stage, we'll meet and raise a glass again together in Valhalla, that whole thing. Yep. But I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's more just, I mean, from a plot standpoint and I mean, this whole episode feels more so than recent episodes that it's set up for a bunch of stuff that's going to come next week. Yeah. And that was all staged against a brewing storm yeah, and all this totally. stuff. It, the thing that's a bummer is that it doesn't, I mean, right. I totally don't remember all the events that happened next week and maybe some amazing stuff goes down. It just does not feel like it's, it feels like it's all, all anticipation, but for a thing that I don't really personally have a lot of anticipation for. I know me too. Or I'm like, Oh, there's going to be a hearing for comatose Leo. And like, <laughs> right. I mean, Cooper is gonna like I have no idea. I I don't remember where where exactly the beats of the no, of the Audrey story go, but like, just it made me. It makes me want the like all of the forces that are at work that are making this episode good consistently across this stuff. But also, it just reminds me of like the anticipation of the last couple episodes of season one and stuff. But I'm like, I don't think I care. I don't think I care about this stuff right now. Yeah. Um. I mean, I know that it's all, everything's continuing to move forward, but like it, it was, it was a strange episode to me for that reason. Right. Just like, right. It's incredibly competent and it's interesting to watch. Um, it actually made me think about, um, 
Lynch and Frost not really wanting the murder of Laura Palmer to to stay the center stage only thread, and they wanted oh, the show yeah. to have that be a back burner thing, and then the network yeah, eventually sure. started pushing them. Yeah. This episode feels like sort of the base level best you could hope for if that was what Twin Peaks became forever to me, right, where it's just right, like, right, right. we're just watching these threads go, and the characters are really mm-hmm. interesting. Only one character this week really cares about Laura Palmer, and it's Donna. Even Cooper is totally distracted by Audrey the entire right. time. He doesn't make yeah. any headway in the investigation. Yeah. Like Jacques Renault's murder, well, Audrey's kidnapping, these, like, hearings like which have become tertiary. Yeah, it's all this ancillary yeah. stuff, and like only only Donna cares. Everyone else is just caught up in their own crazy Twin Peaks stuff, and it's actually pretty watchable and pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah I agree. I but like, agree. N- you know, knowing that really most of what Twin Peaks actually ended up boiling down to in practice is who killed Laura Palmer. It's tough to right. to get myself geared up for yep. Yep. For, for that stuff. And yep. I know there are Twin Peaks fans who will bristle at me saying that what Twin Peaks boils down to is who killed Laura Palmer, but I don't know. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't boil down to that. I don't... I I mean, mean, no, no, not not that that literally that question, not like, not finding the answer to that out, but I mean, Twin Peaks, its life is mostly just that one story, even though it sort of tries to wrench itself wider and wider over time. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. You know? Yep. If we lived in a different world where there were four seasons of Twin Peaks, I might feel differently (coughs) about this period of the show than I do, but... Yeah. I think this period of the show and mm-hmm. some other later stuff is why there aren't four seasons of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, I don't know. Um, you want to talk about uh, the Josie stuff? Yeah, that's getting close to the end of things, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we're, we're basically after this, there's like just the stuff that happens at the end and that's it. Um, so I don't know about you. This was the of all the threads we've talked about. This was the one that I really didn't care about. In this no, episode. I, I, it was so boring. Yep. The only thing that I enjoyed about it uh, personally was... Well, even even it went south in a way that I forgot, but it's predictable. But it's just the very beginning of Josie and uh, Truman yeah. talking to each other. I, I thought was good. Just like it was good to see Truman be like, when he raises even the tiniest ounce of suspicion and Josie's just like, well, go screw yourself. You know, like I, I that that moment held me, but then they end up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the words of James doing it. <laughs> well, that I thought was worthy of note in the sense that it's like the opening shot. It struck me as something that came from someone who was familiar with Lynch's work and with his, um, I guess, kind like of screen style? interests. Yeah, the house style, because um, there's this whole thing, like, you know, he's suspicious of her. She wants to just move past it. She tells, she says, like, tear my clothes off or like rip my, whatever. Like she yeah. wants him to, to, uh, to, uh, rip her clothes off and like take her or whatever she says. And that, which Truman does. Um, and then there's like lightning and someone's watching them and it's right. like very dramatic and it does. And except that the guy who's watching them is that, I know that is uninteresting man. Yeah, I know. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because it, it felt like another, it really reminded me of other Lynch stuff like blue velvet where, someone man or characters who imagine if that had been pete or leland, or leland palmer <laughs> oh, imagine man. how much better that would have been those are the either, two extremes yeah but it just, of like yeah. people who would make weird interesting david lynch faces and who would have like a weird insane meaning inside of the storyline yeah. that actually is God, if it was leland palmer that would be incredible why would he be there but it no, just, there's no reason at all it would just be, be an amazing he'd shot. only be there so the, that crazy lightning through the window in the rain yeah. would just make his face look right, insane right but the uh, the thing that I wanted to to say about about the sort of Lynch style is that I feel like Lynch has definitely across I would say several of his films has 
a preoccupation with the notice with the with the notion that as characters engage in kind of sexual aggressiveness, they are basically descending into darkness. Mm-hmm. Like that that is totally all over Blue Velvet. Yeah. And like I think Mulholland Drive. And right? also and like, the notion that that sort of uh its presence sort of alerts things inside yes, of that darkness. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's true. It it not only does it draw the characters into it, it, it draws the darkness itself out. Yeah. Of wherever it is. Yeah. That's totally true. Um so I thought that was worth noting. Um we learned that guy the boring guy is cousin Jonathan. So almost certainly not actually. Um uh I don't know. There's all that mill plot complications. I don't really have anything to say much about this stuff. No. It um we we see Jonathan again in the double R late at night when he goes and just beats the shit out of Hank and says, "Next time, we'll take your head off." It, it seemed like Hank knew him. Well, they mentioned Hank together, didn't they? I I that were, I was such an unexpected info dump for me when he was like, "We're wanted back in Hong Kong." Names, 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 names. People here. Right. Yeah. Did they mention Hank in any capacity in that conversation? I totally can't remember. No, they mentioned the sheriff. They they mentioned Truman. I thought they talked about Hank and then Truman. Maybe. I can't remember. I, he's a, oh, that stuff all kind of went in one area. There may be a problem with Hank. And then oh, uh, yeah, he right. says, I'll deal with him. Or we suspect You're right. You're right. You're right. Josie says, certainly not. What about, and then what about the sheriff? He means nothing to me. That's not what I asked. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, I, because this Mill storyline was more enjoyable to me way earlier when it was kind of this farcical thing with these two families in Twin Peaks vying right. for it. And now it's like apparently a global conspiracy like yeah. they're now interested in the mill across three continents apparently right, <laughs> right. okay yeah um yeah yep uh and that's the episode i guess oh yeah that's right because there's that <laughs> i mean that's the end hanks, right? yeah hanks fight in the diner was so good and how bad it is like one again it feels like the work of a super competent TV director because when they're like fight scene, like when the like when the storm was going and the lights finally went out and Twin Peaks lost power, I thought that was actually really nicely shot. It was uh-huh. really compelling. Yeah. The cheesy flashlights, but then man, Hank's doing like stupid like Dirk Diggler judo moves on him. Like he's doing, like <laughs> it just like, it just looks like yeah like a guy that you regret having cast as a B grade henchman in a Chuck Norris movie or something where like, he's just like trying to do chop kicks and stuff. Like what, what is this? I mean, (laughs) the answer is it's like eighties, early nineties fight scene, TV fight scene direction. Right. Where for some reason, just like bad martial arts moves sneak into just otherwise just a burly guy punching people. Right. Oh man. It it was unstoppable to watch now. (laughs) Yep. Years and years and years after. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, man. Of course, that is like the sort of kick Hank would try to throw on a guy when right. getting in a fight yeah, in a yeah, diner. Yeah. Yep. A guy who wears a leather jacket <laughs> yeah. and is in a 1991 television show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, so dumb. But every moment up until that, in that scene, I was actually really into it. Like, the pounding on the door and uh-huh. Hank yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I agree. showing up. I agree. Like, oh, man. But then, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Too bad the guy didn't drop a business card on him that said M.T. Wentz. <laughs> all right well (laughs) that made me really happy (laughs) (laughs) let me look for some reader mail here yeah 
Oh man. I'm sorry, listener mail. Yeah. People listen to this podcast and watch Twin Peaks. They don't read anything except except the Twin Peaks Rewatch forums, which you should check out by going to TwinPeaksRewatch.com and click the forums link. That's true, actually. There's actually really good stuff in there all the time. There really is, yes. Um, So Alistair Craig writes, Dear Chris and Jake, in a 1990 article promoting the pilot episode, David Lynch said he was intrigued by the structure forced by commercial breaks. Quote, You find yourself thinking in terms of making these little 11-minute movies, and it's kind of neat. Lynch's version of Twin Peaks really seems to honor that mantra. So many scenes function as standalone shorts. Major Briggs' first scene at the dinner table, table, Cooper lying wounded in the lodge, beautiful, surreal little vignettes that could just as easily work on stage and out of context. Even the ridiculous teen song session has a compelling internal structure. This, I feel, is why the back half of Twin Peaks is a fundamentally different show. Not because it loses its focus on a broader story scale, but because these little character interactions stop being intricate, independent labors of love. Without these moments to savor and analyze, the show is left to succeed or fail in plot alone. Um, thank you for a wonderful podcast. It's been a joy to hear someone else embrace the show's structure, goofiness, and compelling creative choices with such relish, Al- relish Alistair Craig. This, he also um, has his own thoughts on our two-episode per, mo- per podcast idea, but I'm not. we're, we're going to save that for later if we decide to do it. Yeah. Um, it's funny because him saying that, I think I actually agree with that in every episode except this one because this is not the ep- this one. This no, is the episode. What do you mean every episode? Sorry, like the notion that there, like when the show falls apart for me, it actually that is a, that is a contributing factor. What he's saying, is yeah. Sort of, I just don't think we're there yet. That's true. I guess just last episode was such a, a warning signal to me for for when the show can end up oh, getting sure. kind of yeah, boring, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it is just cross cutting between a ton of plot that is that is not always compelling. But this episode is absolutely not using the model that Lynch uses structurally. Like there's between commercial breaks, there's always like two or three independent scenes, often cross cut or often uh, sort of transitioning between themselves and stuff. But it's really compelling. Whereas you could imagine an incredibly bad version of this exact episode way more easily than I think you could imagine a bad TV episode in the style that David Lynch does, just because it doesn't exist. No one right. else makes TV That's like true. like he makes it, whereas where, where we're at right now, structurally and sort of directorially, a lot of TV is made like this. Yeah. Like, no one's going to make... Oh, remember that bad episode of Friends where a guy was shot and laid <laughs> on the floor for <laughs> three minutes? Right. Or where it came back from commercial and just had two teenagers recording a song? Right. You know, three teenagers, excuse me, a love triangle <laughs> arc? Yeah. Um, I don't know. But that's, that's, I thought that was good. Yeah. Um, here's another email. Alex Phillips. He actually says, don't read this on air. And he just has a whole thing about thanking us for the podcast and so on. So I'm not going to read that whole part. But then he has a second <laughs> observation that I, I don't think he would mind if I read on air, which is says, um, it struck me as you were discussing Colonel Briggs' message in the coma episode that it vaguely echoes something Cooper said in the pilot. When two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. The colonel gets his message both from outer space and the message from the log lady at near the same time, which prompts him to act. I might just be making connections where there aren't any intended, but those are my I thought those are my two cents. Keep it up, Alex. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, that is good. I forgot about that Cooper line, and that is Me a too. good Cooper line. Yeah, for sure. Also, that is a thing that you should like that Cooper line, as far as like things that I imagine either explicitly or not exist inside of the Twin Peak Twin Peaks story structure and writing Bible, that line's got to be near the top. <laughs> like, true. if that ever yeah. happens, pay attention, whether the characters in the, mo- in the show notice it or not. Yeah. Yep. 
absolutely. Um, all right. Well, uh, on that, we want to move into spoilers. Yeah, let's, I have one thing. I one spoiler. Let's I spoil some Twin Peaks. Yeah. So, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, um, consider telling a friend or uh, rating us on iTunes if you if you like what we're doing. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Peaks Rewatch, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Twin Peaks Rewatch. You can send us email at Twin Peaks at idlethumbs.net. Our website is Twin Peaks And again, uh, please halt listening now if you have not heard the entirety of, or I've not watched the entirety of the Twin Peaks television series and movie Fire Walk With Me. Um, because we're going to be talking about stuff that you don't know yet. Yep. Don't even listen to this music that's about to happen. <laughs> you can listen to the music if you're very careful about turning it off as soon as it ends. Uh, thanks. We will see you guys next week. Spoiler police. What? They were there. I know. I'm going to leave it in. So I just had one spoiler. I don't know if you had anything for spoilers. I had one observation I wanted to make that I didn't even make. It was actually um, Sarah pointed this out to me. In the opening scene, I know, right? In the opening scene, um, when there's all of the when we see the uh, like acoustic ceiling tile mm-hmm. um, shot and we hear it's like this kind of audio montage of mainly white noise, but we also hear Waldo, what sounds like Waldo saying, Laura, Laura um, is the implication that it's sort of what has been heard inside of this room. Well, her suggestion was that it was Leland's memory was that what we're hearing as we're going through the ceiling tile is like Leland doing his like deep spare stare into space. Like the walls have the, that same tile. Like he's basically right. just like sitting there, like probably unconsciously because he clearly doesn't right. like Leland as Bob. What were the other things that were heard inside of that? Uh... It was just a bunch of, I can't remember. It was just a bunch of just noise. It was mainly noise, but you can't, but you do hear the little Laura, Laura. Okay. And, and she suggested this was like part of, Leland's basically unconscious memory. Oh, crazy! Because I didn't he, notice Waldo there, but if, had, had I been asked to come up with what I thought that would be, I think that I, I would have thought that it was literally a, like if these walls could talk, because that was the room in which Waldo was killed after saying that. Same oh, stuff. interesting. That's a, that's also a really good. I think so, at least. Oh no, that's in the holding cell. He was in the, the Waldo was in the conference room. Oh, or right. there, this is in that little tiny interrogation room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're right. It's it's totally a different room. Weird. Very strange. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And if you haven't, if you haven't. I mean, hopefully everyone listening to this already has seen all this and already knows that Leland was effectively the killer. Um, I wonder how people who noticed that, who... Like what you think about it. Yeah, yeah what, you, what, what you think about that. Because I... Yeah. I don't know. I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting choice. Huh. That yeah. was another thing that made me... that uh, Not that I... Because I, when I mentioned... Or when we first started talking about this episode, that I wouldn't have been surprised to learn that this was a Lynch episode. It's not because I was necessarily convinced of that, but because that's the kind of choice that always seems like it rarely gets made without the direct involvement of Frost or Lynch. Right. Frost you know, was one of the four writers yeah, on this that's episode. That's true. That's true. Um, uh, but I've, that's one of the things I've noticed about the episodes that they write and or direct is that they often are the episodes where stuff like that, that isn't just sort of character development or straightforward plot development, but things like that, that are potentially really significant um, in ways that are kind of 
unintuitive or weird, those almost always come in episodes that one of those, yep. at least one of those guys. And is when it's something like that, with. though, something like that sound effect, it's really hard to know at what stage that even was put well, into the episode. Absolutely, like, yeah. I don't was know. that even the director's intent that that was going to be there? Was right. it even Mark Frost's yeah. intent when he was right. in the writer's room? Or was it just when editing that yeah. scene, he or Lynch or even just their sound designer came up with as a good touch that then they were like, that's great and yeah. kept it in. You know, you never, you never mm-hmm. know unless you absolutely exactly. Man. Yeah, okay. Knows? This, this reminds me of something that actually really bums me out. Okay. Um, when Twin Peaks first came out on DVD, <clears throat> it had uh, director's commentary tracks on a ton of episodes by the directors of those episodes. Mm-hmm. But apparently Lynch doesn't like, he like actively dislikes commentary tracks. Oh. So they've not been on any subsequent releases. I and heard it was because they were owned by a different, Oh, really? I heard it was a rights issue. But everything in Twin Peaks is a rights issue, and they, yeah. like, just clawed for years mm-hmm. to get everything consolidated into one set of hands. Yeah. And they apparently didn't give a crap about those. Maybe it is a totally a rights issue, it but was, it feels like... It might like, have been both. I mean, it might have been yeah. that it was a rights issue. But it's not worth it. There wasn't enough creative impetus if to... Lynch yeah. wasn't like, I need those. They're yeah, part of right. the complete Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Instead, he, it seemed like he might have just been like... Uh, I don't care if those are lost to time, but I haven't listened to them and I really want to Mm -hmm. because doing this podcast has made me really conscious of all the different hands that are or aren't totally like that, that are, aren't, or could potentially hypothetically be at work. And I'm sure hearing from all the different voices on these episodes on those commentary tracks. I mean, that's the exact kind of thing that you always learn about on commentary tracks. Yeah. Because when something like that's going on, there's nothing to talk about except for this weird little choice. But that's in a show like this, it's, it's interesting to me when... Because a lot of those choices aren't just throwaway flourishes. They can potentially have meaning or right. they're thrown in offhandedly and then get picked up mm-hmm. as something meaningful yeah. later. Right. Yes. Whether sure. it's a flickering light or a guy saying the wrong guy's name or right. a weird name or a weird or Waldo the bird being inside of the pull out of the acoustic tile. I don't know. Yeah. Meh. All right. Well, in if, conclusion, you have, if, meh. if you have any insight in that, you can email us at uh, Twin Peaks at idlethumbs.net. I'd be curious to hear if anyone knows the story behind that or has any... Uh, more conclusive interpretation than ours. Why is Waldo the bird in this wall? <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with episode 13. It's got the best name, I bet. <laughs> the Orchid's Curse. Uh. <laughs> the, the Orchid's Curse is the episode that should have the thunderstorm in the background the entire time. <laughs> Tune in for The Orchid's Curse. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye.